You know, leaders don't fall overnight. Oftentimes it feels like it will be just going through life and there'll be some leader of an organization, pastor of a church that's just blowing up and killing it and it seems like it's just tremendously successful and then you open up your Twitter feed and there's this news of, of the leader falling and, and it seems like it just came out of nowhere and, and how could this have happened when we know all has been going so well? And what we learn as we start to hear the story, the backstory of what actually happened is we realize that that leader actually didn't fall overnight. It's a lot like when we have been talking about Mars Hill, the church in Seattle, Washington, that was the city of the, the most unreached city in our, in our country. And then Mark Driscoll planted a church there that ended up having 50,000 members. And, and it was just incredible to see all the great things that God was doing there. People were getting saved, marriages were being healed, lives were being changed. They were celebrating hundreds and even thousands of baptisms and all this great, great work of God was going on. And then they were gone and he was run out of town. And it seemed like overnight. But as the podcast that I've been listening to, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, reveals there was a lot of stuff that gradually was going on. It's a lot like the trees next door. As you drove to church, you saw how different everything looked suddenly. Well, I noticed those trees that have fallen down or have been cut down, a lot of them are hollowed out on the inside. They've been rotting for years. And it reveals there's an internal rot that's been going on that... Maybe one day that tree would have fallen and hit the ground and suddenly everyone said, wow, that huge tree just out of nowhere just fell. And, and that looking at the closer inspection reveals that, that that tree has been rotting out for years and years, though it was going unnoticed. Today we're going to look at this massive scripture from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 16, where we left off last week. And we're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 14 and let me just tell you up front what I think the author is doing in this text. It's very interesting. Last week, we saw Saul, King Saul of Israel, has rejected God's word. It's, it's pictured as he's walked away from God's word, walked away from Samuel. Samuel leaves the scene, and he's not brought back into the scene until chapter 15. And so we have this glimpse of Saul apart from the word of God, disobeyed God, and now we're going to see what happens. And in chapter 15, Saul comes back in and the tree falls to the ground. Samuel comes back in and the tree, Saul, falls to the ground. Samuel says to King Saul, you're done. It's over. And at that point, I'm sure everybody in Israel is like, wait, what? what? King Saul is done? Why? Look at all the great things he's done. And the answer is in this in-between large narrative that we're going to study of several passages that just the author's giving us an inside look inside the trunk of the tree and see the rot that is rotting away slowly but surely that goes unnoticed by everyone from the outside. And here's the warning that I'm going to tell you up front because it's a lot of text. We're going to, I'm going to try not to lose you, but I don't want you to miss the point. The point is this. God is telling you this morning, examine your heart. Look for rot. Is there spiritual rot going on inside? As you've got, have you gotten away from the Lord? Have you gotten away from his word? Have you gotten away from wanting to know the heart of God? 
That's where it begins. And we're going to see that's what happens with Saul. And we're going to ask God to help us get back to his heart and deal with it. Father, we ask for your help this morning. As we look at your word, we see how desperately we need to stay close to you and stay focused on your heart, to be a people after your heart. Your word is what tells us your heart. So help us examine our lives this morning and look for rot, look for internal decay so that we can deal with it, get back to your word, get back to your heart and be healthy followers of Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so immediately after what we saw last week, immediately after Saul rejected God's word, we get this scene of hopelessness. And I think the author is just doing literary imagery showing us how hopeless Saul's situation became as soon as he walked away from God's word. Look at verses 16 through 23. It says, And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Remember, there was, they were as numerous as the sands of the seashore. They're camped up on the hill, and they are about to descend on Saul and the Israelites. And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned towards Beth Haran. And another towards the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. So the Philistines went out, captured the supply routes in three different raiding crews. And now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. Listen to how desperate the situation has become. The Philistines said, well, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. They don't want to have any access to to the blacksmith, so they can't turn their, their swords, can't turn their agricultural tools into swords or spears. So in verse 20, it says, But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen their plowshare and his mattock and his axe, his sickle, and the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes for setting the goads. So on the day of battle, listen to this, on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people. Now, we saw last week how outnumbered they were. Well, we're just now finding out it gets worse. They didn't have any weapons. They had nothing except for Saul and Jonathan had sword and spear. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So do you see what's happening? As soon as the author tells us that Saul rejected God's word, disobeyed God, and says, I got this, I'll take care of all this battle, all this stress that's coming in on me. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to handle it, Lord. I got this. I'm not going to obey you. I'm going to partially obey you, but I'm going to use you to accomplish what I need. And as soon as I think that what you're offering doesn't work in my rubric of how I'm going to do this, then you're out and I'm going to take matters into my own hands. As soon as he did that, as soon as he started to rely on self and push God to the side, it got truly desperate. All of his people have no weapons and it, it, 
I couldn't help but, and I don't know if you see these things, because if you don't study these as much as I'm able to do during the week, because you pay me to do that, I know you got jobs, but the stuff that I get to do during the week, I start to see things like, this is clearly uh, imagery of when leaders of churches walk away from the word of God, the people are powerless against the enemy. And it leads to a desperate situation. When you in your life turn away from God's word, you think you're going to take care of important matters, but what you don't realize is you're laying your weapons down against the enemy. And so we need to hear this warning this morning. Don't walk away from the word of God. Don't walk away from God being central in your life. So what happens next? Look at verses 1 through 23. One day Jonathan... The son of Saul said to his young man carrying the armor, hey, come on, let's go up to the Philistine garrisons on the other side. And I bet his, his armor, armor bearer was like, do what? Have fun with that. I'm not going up there. I don't even have a sword. That's not what he did. So he, but then Jonathan didn't tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migran, you know, the pomegranate cave in Migran. <laughs> I think that's funny. I'm like, you know, the pomegranate cave, you know, the pomegranate trees out there. Anyway, the people who were with him, he had about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, and Ichabod's brother. Now, Ichabod, you're going, wait, I remember that. Ichabod means the glory has gone. The glory has departed. So this is where Saul is. Saul is hanging out where there ain't no glory. The son of Phinehas. Now, who is that? That's the son of Eli. Oh, that's the priest of the Lord Shiloh wearing ephod. So that's the departed. That's the line of the priesthood that was getting fat on the glory of God that he fell back and broke his neck. And Ichabod, his son, the glory has departed. So you have this king who has been told, it's done. You're not the king. You're a rejected king hanging out with the rejected priesthood where there is no glory of God. This is what happens when we walk away from the word of God and God being central in our heart. And then the author starts to paint this contrasting picture of Jonathan in contrast to Saul, who is where there is no glory, there is no word, and the rejected king is with the rejected priesthood. You've got in contrast to that, meanwhile, Jonathan, his son, is being a courageous man of faith. Jonathan and his armor bearer go over to this massive army of Philistines. And listen to what Jonathan says in verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come on, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It just may be that Yahweh, the Lord, will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or few. So do you hear this man of faith? In contrast to his dad, you've got this man of faith who says, listen, I know it looks hopeless in all outward appearances. It is hopeless, but not when we trust in the Lord. The Lord just may want to use us to do something great here. And so he leads his armor bearer. He says, let's go up and, and, and see what the Lord has. And, and, and he came up with this uh, this idea, but he's doing it because he is trusting solely in God. He's not looking at it from a strictly human perspective. He's saying, if God wants to do something here, he absolutely can. In verse 12, Jonathan said to his arm bearer, come up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. 
and Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. So let me pause there and tell you what's going on. So Jonathan came up with this scheme or this way of discerning the Lord's will. He says, all right, we're going to go up there and we're going to holler out, hey, let them know we're here. And if they do this, then we know, okay, that's the Lord saying, come on, I'm with you, attack. But if they do that, then the Lord's telling us not to go. It's, it's weird and we don't fully understand it, but what we do see that Jonathan is doing is this man who knows the battle is the Lord is saying, I will do exactly what the Lord wants me to do. No matter what it looks, it may seem crazy, but if God tells me to go, I'm going to go, and we're going to trust that God does his thing. And so he called out to them. They saw him. They, they said what the sign was, which was, okay, God's telling us to fight. So Jonathan and his armor bearer climbed up and says, all before Jonathan and his armor bearer, and he killed, he killed them all. Verse 14, in that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men in about a half acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp. And so all the people, because of this one act of faith among all the Philistines, thousands and thousands of Philistines, see what just happened. And all of a sudden, they're in a full-fledged panic in the camp and in the field. And among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a great panic. So against all odds, God is giving them victory to his people. And it all became because one man acted in faith. And the way it's described, the quaking of the earth, who is the one who actually gets the victory here? What's the... What's the reason that there was victory here? Is it because, because Jonathan was such a skilled warrior? No. Was it because the armor bearer was like Captain America, had that one special shield or something? No. It's because God had a plan, and God wanted to give them victory in this situation. And when Jonathan and the armor bearer aligned themselves with what God wanted to do, they got to participate in an incredible victory that day. And as a result, God caused a great panic among the Philistines. But you know what people on the outside were thinking about this time? They're like, man, that Saul's good. Man, Saul, how smart was that for him to send Jonathan and the armor bearer up there and, and take out 20 and, and make the rest of the Philistines think, man, if, if they're that good, I'm out of here. Man, Saul, what a brilliant leader he is. Because the outside's looking in, and they're not seeing what's going on the inside. But meanwhile, Saul, we get a glimpse at what's going on, and Saul is clueless. He's as clueless. He doesn't know what's going on. He sees the, the Philistines all up on the hillside turning against each other. They're starting to disperse. And he's pictured in the next scene as, as really, he's not wise, this wise leader seeking after God's will. He's clueless. It says in verse 18, so Saul said to Ajah, hey, uh, bring the ark of God here. Figure out what's going on. So he goes through and he says, hey, count the troops. Tell me how many people are here. And he starts counting and he says, wait a minute, who's missing? He says, Jonathan's missing. Oh, that's right. You sent Jonathan, right? No, Saul had no clue what was going on. 
And so Saul has to figure out what's going on. And then as he figures out, well, Jonathan must be there fighting battle. He says, well, bring the ark of God here. And it sounds like he's going to do something great. He's going to obey God because the Torah said, before you go to battle, bring the ark of God here and have the priest prepare the troops. And then you can go to battle. So he says, bring the ark of God here. And, and then it says in verse 19, now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Stop, I don't have time for this. This is exactly what he did wrong last chapter. He partially obeyed. God told, you, told him, wait on Samuel for seven days, and when Samuel comes, he will perform this ceremonial worship. He'll prepare you to go to battle. He started that, but then he got stressed out. He said, I don't have time for this, and he moved on. Here he is again. Bring the ark. Let's worship. Let's prepare the troops. Let's do what God's told us to do. Wait, I'm missing my, my opportunity. Get out of here. Let's go. And so again, we see the spiritual rot inside that no one else can even see. What makes matters worse is Saul's continues not to taste the consequences of his disobedience. And that's why I say that's one of the scariest things imaginable, is to not be doing what you're supposed to do, to not be walking with the Lord, to not be obeying the Lord, to not be reading your word because you know that reveals God's heart for your life, and not to be facing any consequences, to be having a banner year at work have a church that's just blowing up, new facilities, people coming, breaking records, and yet there's something wrong because we're not really grounded in the Lord. In verse 20, behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was a great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So do you hear what's going on? Remember last week we saw that when the stress happened, Saul was stressing out because even his own people were going over to the side of the Philistines because they're like, I'm out. We're going to lose. I'm going to go to the Philistine side. Well, now those Philistines are, they have a sword because they're with the Philistines. And when they see Jonathan attack, they turn on the Philistines. How brilliant is Saul? He planted all these guys in there as spies, didn't he? Not at all. He didn't do anything brilliant. But on the outside, he looks like he's, he's doing great. And then it says also, likewise, in verse 22, when all the men of Israel had hidden themselves, remember they all hid in rocks and caves and tombs because they were running for their lives. Well, when they saw all this turning around and the Philistines running for their lives, when they were fleeing, they followed hard after them. They come out of the holes like cockroaches. But look what the real story is. Verse 23, the Lord tells us, but the Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord saved Israel that day. It wasn't Saul's military might. It wasn't Saul's genius. But that's what the world would be saying. That's what the Twitter feed would say. Look at Saul. He just had a brilliant game plan. Look how great he is. I knew that this is why we wanted him to be our king. We wanted a king like all the other nations. He's exactly what we were looking for. And they're getting praise, heaping praise upon a man who's spiritually rotting from the inside out.
And if that's not bad enough, finally we get one last scene of a foolish vow that, that Saul makes. It really, we don't even know what in the world he was thinking. I think he was just trying to do some spiritual, kind of put a spiritual twist on his, on his uh, efforts. It says in chapter 14, verse 24, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So this is as the men of Israel had been chasing down the Philistines and they're, they're taking them down one by one. By the end of the day, all that we've been reading has been one day, one day in the life of Saul. And they'd been chasing, they'd been hard-pressed that day. So Saul does a really silly thing. He makes an oath. He laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening and I avenge my enemies. Commentaries are like, we don't know what he was doing. It's like, I think it's almost like, I'm going to fast. I'm not going to eat today. I'm going to make make sure that God's on my side. Like manipulating God, that seems to be Saul's M.O. is to use God to serve Saul's desires, not to serve God and his desires. And so he, he, he forces this vow on all the people, don't eat anything. And they are famished. They've been fighting all day. So what happens? Well, the people obey for the most part. They do what the leader tells them to do. Though the land was flowing with milk and honey. That's why they call the land the land was the promised land flowing with milk and honey. Literally bees in the ground had beehives and literally honey would be flowing out of those hives on the ground. And here they are famished and starving and having given the whole day in battle. And this foolish leader lays upon him this vow, don't eat a thing. And it says all the people for the most part didn't eat, but Jonathan, verse 27, had not heard his father's charge the people with this oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and he dipped it in the honeycomb. He put it in his mouth and his eyes became bright. He, had his, he was revitalized. He was strengthened. It was good. And then one of the people said, your father has strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And all the people were faint. And Jonathan said something, key phrase here. My father has troubled the land. My father has troubled the land. That's the exact same phrase of referring to Achan's sin. When he sinned and the Israelites were punished for it and, and the land was in trouble, it's the same phrasing. My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little honey. Jonathan knows his father is acting foolishly. He sees the internal, he sees what's going on inside the house. He knows they're rotting away, slowly but surely, though the outside looks solid. And he goes on to say in verse 30, How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. It could have been so much better if my dad had just been faithful what he's saying. If you'd just been faithful, just trusted the Lord, God would have done so much more. All the people are cheering him. Yeah, he's such a great leader. And the, the son on the inside is going, no, all's not well. But outwardly, it still looked good. They still had success. Verse 31, they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijon. And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil. They took the sheep and the oxen and the cows and they slaughtered them on the ground. Long live the king. He's such a great king. All the while rotting on the inside. Then Saul does some 
religious activity. He builds an altar of the Lord that day. It says it's the first altar he built to the Lord. We don't really know what that means other than it clearly has a negative implication. And then it says this. It says, then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines at night. And let's plunder them until the morning light. You see his pragmatism. Let's go, let's go. Let's, let us not leave one of them. And then they said, well, the people said, do whatever seems right to you. And then the priest said, well, hey, how, how about we seek God on this? Let us draw near to God. And Saul's like, well, okay. And Saul inquired of God, God, I know I haven't chatted in a while. But should I go after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? Silence. Those are scary words. But God did not answer him that day. God's like, I'm not playing your game anymore. You see the progression that Saul's going through. He walked away from the word of God. He disobeys. Partial obedience becomes complete outright. Disobedience becomes he doesn't even have relationship with the Lord. Prayers are just falling on deaf ears. This is a scary place to be. And when he sees that the Lord doesn't answer him, what's his first thought? Oh, hit his knees and say, Father, forgive me. No, he says, whose sin is this? He ain't thinking about himself. Which one of you is the problem? Verse 39, for as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. He's making these foolish vows that someone has sinned, and I don't care if it, if it's my son, I'll put him to death because I'm that serious about my religion. And it was Jonathan, but not a, there was not a man among the people who answered him. In verse 44, God, he says, God, do so to me more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. In verse 45, then the people said, Saul, Saul, shall Jonathan die? Jonathan, who has worked this great salvation in Israel, far from it, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. The people stepped in and saved Jonathan's life because they knew he was the one living faithfully. So what's God saying to you today? I'll tell you what he's saying to me as a pastor of what I would say is a church that's killing it. He's blessing our church. We're having record attendance. We're having record new membership. We're having record giving. We've got this beautiful facility. It's paid in cash. And you know what my big fear is? Is that I'm not getting ready for a sermon all week so that I can do my job. I'm praying, God, let me never forget that the word of God is first for me and my heart. Because that's what pastors do all the time. It's such a temptation to, when your job is the word of God, it's such a temptation to let your time in the word be just a job. And your own heart becomes calloused to him working in your heart. And so I pray, Lord, don't ever let me get to that scary place where it looks great on the outside, but I'm rotting internally, internally. Where I'm getting away from that word being an intimate time with the Lord saying, Tracy, here's your sin. I want you to repent of this. And here's the path I want you to walk on. 
perhaps you're a businessman or woman and, and you've been so successful and you're so focused on building your business or you're starting that business or, or growing your business. And, and in the business, you've taken your eye off the, the Lord and you've walked away from that time of intimate relationship with him through time and his word and hearing from him and, and disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness. And you've drifted from that or you're so focused on raising well-adjusted kids and they have all the activities and all the things that you think are most important and you're failing the most important time and that's with Jesus and there's this internal beginning of a spiritual rotting that that you need to diagnose or maybe it's a marriage outwardly everyone say man what a great marriage but you know that Christ is not at the center core of your marriage Don't let that continue. The Lord is calling us to just stop for a minute and diagnose our heart and look for spiritual rot that's taking place, though outwardly everything looks fine. Finally, maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Samuel, the book of Samuel is all about Jesus. It's saying the the king was rejected, but Jesus is the ultimate king. The priest was rejected, but Jesus is the ultimate priest. And he walked away from this prophet, the word of God, but Jesus is the very embodiment of the word of God. You can trust him with your life. He died on the cross to take your sins, the penalty for your sins, and he will give you hope. He'll give you eternal life. He'll give you direction, but you've got to draw near to him. And so the call today is, is in Jude 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ, the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I pray that we do that this morning. Father, I pray that you'll warn us, wake us up, Help us to identify any internal rotting, any, any internal problems where we have walked away from you, where we've drifted from a relationship with you, that we will trust you once again and we'll see that you are our priority. And there's a high price to pay when we walk away from you. So give us the gift this morning of repentance and making you first. And it's in Christ's Glorious name we pray.